And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's The Real Investment Show on this Tuesday which is actually kind of a Thursday sort of, I guess, I don't know, we're creeping up on the holiday here. Thursday, of course, Thanksgiving Day. Market will be closed on Thursday, half day trading on Friday, uh, closed on Saturday. So then we'll be back to a full week uh, next week. Michael Leibowitz, normally here on Thursday. He's going to join me today so we can catch up on everything Federal Reserve related, what's going on there, uh, market outlooks as well. So again, lots of stuff uh, to go over on the show this morning. So make sure you get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog post is out talking about why we probably are going to have some more bearish action before we get to the next bull market. Now, the good news is, is that we're going to get to the next bull market cycle. That is coming. Uh, we just got a little bit more work to do first, and that is on the website this morning. We'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about that this morning as well on the show. Uh, but that is on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Also, while you're there, send us your questions, your comments, emails. Always answer those every day. And uh, make sure you're subscribed to our daily market commentary. It comes out every day at 7.30 in the morning. We give you a little bit of a market trading update, some interesting tidbits about what's happening in the markets, et cetera. That comes out every morning at 7.30 to get you ready for your trading day. Um, and then, of course, our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at the website for that as well. Uh, we get you a full update on the market, what's happening, how we're trading it, market statistics, stock screens, a whole lot more. Uh, to help you manage your own money better. That comes out every Saturday, so make sure you subscribe to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Okay, uh, having said that, market did a whole lot of nothing yesterday. Uh, market kind of flopped around uh, the old uh, Gary Shandling story about fish out of water, a lot of flopping around, gasping for air. Uh, market really did nothing, ended up about where it started, down a little bit yesterday, down about 30 basis points. Markets traded down uh, for the last couple of days, uh, actually three days, but um, we actually, the three uh, on Friday, had bounced off that very important 100-day moving average support, held that very important support level. Um, Markets have kind of just hung in here for the last couple of days, really not doing much. Over the last really seven, eight trading days, markets have gone nowhere, really just sideways, uh, really just kind of working off that big advance that we had. Now, remember, uh, week before last, we had that big 5.5% move in the markets following that weaker than expected CPI inflation report. Market is trading exactly today where it was at that close that Thursday. A week and a half ago. So we've gone absolutely nowhere since that initial spike in the markets. And markets are just pretty much trying to consolidate that advance. That's actually bullish. Uh, and that's actually good for markets. So again, as this market's kind of been consolidating here sideways, the 20-day moving average is continuing to creep up here, lifting up kind of short-term support. Market rally has been following that 20-day moving average really ever since the lows that we'd set back in late September. So again, as we just continue to kind of grind higher here, market just continues to kind of hang in there. Uh, and again, that's bullish. Now, um, markets are getting a little bit overbought on a short-term basis. Our MACD buy signal still very much intact. So again, nothing really much to worry about here. However, um, saying that, despite the fact that this market's kind of been consolidating this advance, 
We've been using this to raise a little bit of equity. We need a little bit, uh, raise a little bit of, uh, sorry, raise a little bit of cash, reduce our equity exposure. Uh, we did some more yesterday, trim back on oil prices. Oil stocks have had a tremendous run here as of late. And again, while, while oil has done, um, uh, while oil stocks have held up here better, oil stocks are down about 5% from their peak. Uh, oil prices have had a much bigger decline here as of late, and it's actually hitting about $80 a barrel. Now, that's, that's down well from where we were talking about just a few months ago when we were talking about $115 a barrel, $120 a barrel. Uh, we've cut about 40 bucks a barrel off that. So oil, stock, oil prices down a whole lot more than energy stocks themselves. Energy stocks have, have been holding up fairly decent here, and that's, that's part of this money chase that's been going on all year, is that money's just been whatever's the best performing sector, money's been flowing into that. But uh, oil stocks still well ele elevated here above kind of their long-term moving averages. So again, there's, there's potential risk here. So we reduced some of our energy exposure yesterday just a smidge. Um, if we do continue to get weaker oil prices, OPEC announced an oil production increase yesterday. Um, if we do get weaker oil prices, that will eventually reflect back into earnings. And again, what, what will be a problem for energy stocks next year won't be the level of earnings. It'll be the year-over-year -year comparisons, the growth rate in earnings will slow down as oil prices decline here. So uh, again, so just took a little bit of profit there. We're still, we're still holding those positions, but just reducing them back kind of to model weight. Also just continuing to kind of pick and, and choose around the portfolio, just lifting a little bit of cash, doing a little bit of tax loss harvesting. But again, the goal here, raise a little bit more cash on this rally, because again, as this rally kind of moves into the end of the year, uh, as we said yesterday, first two weeks of December tend to be a little bit bumpy, uh, tend to get a little bit of a sell-off in the first couple of weeks of December as mutual funds do rebalancing. You get a little bit of that year-end rally. And again, we're kind of right uh, you know, on our targets. We kind of laid out 4,000 to 4,100 on the S&P uh, for year-end. That top end is coming down because the 200-day moving average is declining each day. Uh, the market stays below that level. So right now our top end was 4,100. We're now down to about 4,050 um, as far as, as a top end uh, for this kind of rally in the short term. Now, if the market does manage to get above uh, 4,100, get above the 200-day moving average, we may have a little bit of a story going into the first of next year. We'll have to deal with that when we get there. But again, um, there's a risk here, a bit of a pullback. Uh, first couple weeks of December, get a rally in the year and kind of finish up more or less right about where we are. So, you know, there's there's not a lot of advantage potentially here, you know, worrying about, oh, you're going to miss some upside if the market rallies some more. You may wind up about right where we are right now by year end. Could be a little bit higher, but there's a risk we could end lower. Uh, there is the risk that Santa Claus doesn't come to Broadenwall. It wouldn't be the first time <laughs> in history that that didn't happen. So, again, the risk is really more to the downside. So, again, raise a little bit of cash here reducing some exposure that's going to help kind of just protect portfolios as we get into year end then again as we get into next year something we'll talk about after the break you know the, the this lag effect from all these federal reserve rate hikes and the fed's not done hiking rates yet yes the fed's going to slow their pace of rate hikes only a 50 basis point rate hike in december i say only but that's still a very aggressive rate hike at any point in history so all these rate hikes still play catch up next year you know, what will that do to economic outlooks? What will that do to, to earnings outlooks? And then again, that's where pricing comes in. So the risk next year, at least in the first half of the year, is a continued repricing of assets 
to accommodate for much tighter monetary accommodation. And then hopefully by mid-year next year, we get this kind of bear market cycle behind us, get onto sunnier days, certainly make a better end of the year next year to be talking about at this time as we go into the holiday season. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll come back from the break. We'll pick up with Michael Libowitz. We'll talk about this. We'll talk about what the Fed's going to do uh, coming up at the end of the month. December the 14th, I believe, is the date for the Federal Reserve meeting. So we'll talk about that as well and what that all means. One more big, two actually two more big reports coming out between now and the next Fed meeting of CPI and employment, right? So that's going to be the real driving factor. If those come in hotter than expected, that's not going to play well for equities in the short term. Again, that's the risk as we go into end of the year to be paying attention to. Okay, quick break. We'll come back. Be sure and get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest blog post. All that's there. Our latest newsletter is out on the website as well, getting you ready for the holiday season. All right, we'll be right back with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. Uh, welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Of course, it is The Real Investment Show. Interesting stats right now. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 2.96%. S&P up 2%. NASDAQ up 0.33%. And that's since November the 1st. Now, think about that for a second. The market's gone literally nowhere since Thursday. We were just talking about this a second ago. Thursday of, of week before last when we had that weaker than expected CPI report. And that was following a 5.5% bounce in the index. And yet... Here we are, 21 days, 22 days now into November, and the market's only up 2%. So we were recovered. That 5.5% advance recovered a 3% loss going into that CPI report. So again, you know, it seems like that this market rally's been doing well here over the last several weeks. We all feel better. Thank God the market's going up here a bit. You know, the, the, the kind of that grind that we had in September where it was just every day seemed to be lower, um, you know, is, is, has gone behind us. But again, there really hasn't been a lot of progress in the markets for the month of November. And the problem with that, as we've talked about before, is that, you know, we go through these cycles where markets get very oversold. And we talked about this back in September extreme negative sentiment all of our indicators extremely oversold we talked about our macd buy signal had gotten very very oversold it's at very low levels on a sell signal and that that turn was like 
fuel in a gas tank. And and so you get in the car, the, the tank's full, and you step on the gas, and you've got a long trip ahead of you. Well, th that's the way the market works. When the, you get these extreme oversold conditions, you get these this kind of a full gas tank, and it allows the market to rally. The problem is, is that the markets have rallied now, and we've used up a lot of the gas in that gas tank. In other words, we're closer to the destination of this trip, not the beginning of it. And this is why I was talking about just a second ago about, you know, continuing to use this rally to, you know, raise a bit of cash, reduce some equity exposure risk. It's, it's likely that, you know, we've got some more work to do um, before we get to the end of this kind of bearish market cycle that we're in. But this is also going to have a lot to do with the Federal Reserve, of course, what they do in terms of monetary policy, the, the, the much vaunted pivot, right? So are they going to pivot their policy anytime soon? What does that mean? And then, of course, what does that mean to the markets and the economy and everything else? So joining us more to talk about all that, Michael Leibowitz. Good morning, Mike. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Great yep. to be here on a Tuesday. Yeah, um, it's easier than a Thursday, yeah. <laughs> uh, especially this Thursday. Um, it's funny that when I kind of think about this rally, which kicked off on uh, CPI day, and like you said, we were up what four or five percent mm -hmm. that they're three to five percent, something like that. Five and a half. Or the NASDAQ, yeah. NASDAQ, I think was up five percent. Yeah. But the premise for the rally was pivot, and it, it was pivot because CPI was a little lower than expected, and then PPI followed with a similar type print. The problem with the whole premise, and that's what one of the reasons we were a little skeptical of the rally itself was because it's based on a pivot. So so you have to ask yourself, well, why would the Fed pivot? W what could happen that the Fed would pivot? And when you really think about it, for the Fed to pivot over the next few months, called three to six months, it's not good. You don't want to pivot if you if you hold equities. It, it, it would happen, they would pivot because inflation drops like a rock, which is good news. But if it drops like a rock, it's most likely because economic activity or economic growth GDP is dropping like a rock. Mm -hmm. Or that's one case for a pivot. The other case is like we keep mentioning, something breaks, what the Fed calls financial instability. And right now, you know, there's no signs that there's financial instability in the system. Yes, there's some some cracks in the facade. You, you see it abroad with the UK pension funds. You see it even, I think, things like this FTX crypto problem. Mm -hmm. When you pull liquidity, you start getting uh, problems and it's showing up in crypto space. But again, these aren't problems that the Fed is even really staying up late at night, even talking about or worrying about. Yeah, and, and, and but, economic, but but importantly though, you know that's the way it always is, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's there's never any, you know. Remember, let's go back to 2007, early 2008. Ben Bernanke, ah, everything's fine. Goldilocks economy, subprime subprime mortgages are contained, right? We hold, we heard that a bunch through the first half. Bear Stearns collapses, uh, they get sold off for two bucks a share to J.P. Morgan. Don't worry about it. Subprime's contained, even though subprime had its fingerprints all over Bear Stearns. It was contained, at least everybody thought it was, until it wasn't. And that's the problem with, you know, financial instability. It's not you don't have like raging financial instability and, and everybody knows it. And then the Fed goes, hey, I think I'll fix that. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like, hey, there's not a problem. Then there is. And then they have to fix it. And and here's the problem with subprime. And I can link this over to crypto. 
the problem was not subprime mortgages themselves. The problem was that they created a whole bunch of derivative securities and a bunch of leverage based on those subprime mortgages. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember the number of subprime mortgage, but the, the amount of exposure to subprime mortgages was multiples of subprime. Right. So Bernanke's out there saying, oh, everything's fine. You know, and what he's probably thinking is that, OK, even if 50 percent of those subprime mortgages collapse, it, it's, you know, as a part of the economy, it's not a huge deal. What he failed to factor in was all the leverage and the derivative exposure, which they can't calculate. Right. No one knows how much that is. And that is potentially one risk with crypto. It's not that there's what do they think there is? A, I forgot the number. The, the amount of crypto outstanding. Lance, do you know it? The market, well, the, cap? The, the market cap on crypto as of November the 21st was 2.9. I just actually put a tweet out on this this morning. Uh, the, the market cap in crypto. Um, and, and this is all of crypto in terms of, of its entire market capitalization in November of 21, right? So just exactly one year ago today um, was $2.9 trillion. It's now $800 okay. Billion. okay. So so if Apple were to drop a couple points in a day, it's the same. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a similar market cap, right? So you're right. saying, okay, so what? Apple drops two points all the time. I think it dropped two points yesterday. Right. That there was no harm. The problem is what we don't know is how much leverage, how much bank lending underlies some of the crypto and these derivatives and the infrastructure and everything else. And look, I don't expect crypto necessarily to be that financial instability. Right. But, you know, in 2007, we were looking at these Western banks that, you know, most people had never heard of that were going under. And it's like, so what? It was what Golden West. And, yeah. you know, I, I forgot the names of some of those banks. And a lot of people at the time were like, so what? It's just a small Western bank with, you know, 10 branches, blah, blah, blah. Well, six months later, Bear Stearns is collapsing. <laughs> and a few right. months after that, Lehman's going down. Yeah. And companies like JP Morgan, Fannie Mae, AIG, a whole host of massive companies are falling. So, you know, domino may start with a really small domino, but it can it yeah. can uh, happen quickly. You know, like yeah. what they say about a butterfly's wings and hurricanes. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing, you know, because, you know, FTX isn't, you know, you know, theoretically isn't big enough to take down financial markets. But again, you know, now we're talking about the Genesis Exchange. It's potentially on the verge of bankruptcy. You put out a piece in this morning's daily commentary talking about Coinbase. Um, you know, it's which is interesting because uh, Kathy Wood at ARK has been loading up on Coinbase shares over the last uh, couple of weeks. But, you know, its bonds are pricing at 50 cents on the dollar. And that's, you know, that's, you know, with its bonds pricing at 50 cents on the dollar, that suggests that there's potentially rising bankruptcy risk, even with Coinbase. Right. And here's something very important for, for our listeners to understand. Coinbase, Coinbase is a custodian, just like Fidelity and Schwab. The difference is that Fidelity and Schwab segregate their asset, the securities. So they're not and they can't use your money to make loans. Coinbase is using deposits to make loans. Right. They have right. access to your securities. Fidelity and Schwab don't. The risks are 100 percent different. There, there's no there's no reason to even link the two as similar type entities other that they're other that they're in the same industry. Yeah. And in fact, Coinbase even made that statement. Um, there was some talk about exactly this issue. Uh, I guess about two months ago, we actually talked about it on the show, but Coinbase said, hey, in the event of a bankruptcy, your assets actually belong to Coinbase. 
um, and we can settle, you know, debtor claims with your currency. So in other words, Mike's got a Coinbase account with $100,000 worth of Bitcoin in it in a bankruptcy. In theory, now I'm not saying this is going to happen, but in theory, and what Coinbase alluded to was that they could use Mike's $100,000 to settle with their creditors. So Mike loses this hundred grand to solve a debtor problem for Coinbase. And, and so again, to Mike's point, you know, Fidelity, Schwab, they can't do that. They're, they're custodians. Those are entirely different deposits, segregated deposits. And in the event of bankruptcy, not only does Fidelity and Schwab and all these others carry SIPC insurance, which is the Securities Investor Protection Corporations Act, and that provides um, you know coverage up to $500,000, $100,000 worth of cash, $400,000 of securities in your brokerage account. But then these brokerage firms, because they want much bigger deposits, right? They want the guy with $2 billion to have his assets at Fidelity. They provide hundreds of millions of dollars worth of excess coverage in terms of an insurance policy so that in the event of bankruptcy your money is protected right and that's right. not the case potentially right now with these crypto custodians at least not at this point i think this will become an issue mike you know after we get through this ftx debacle and we get you know more regulation put in we'll, we'll probably see the same custodial arrangements applied to these crypto exchanges uh, I agree 100%. And if you have money deposited at Coinbase, that's considered a loan to Coinbase. So just, you know, think about that. You're loaning money to Coinbase at 0%. You could just go buy their bonds at 15%. It's the same pecking order in the event of default. Exactly. Actually, you may be better off because now no, you're better the, the company. Yeah. First. yeah. Right. All right. Uh, quick break. We'll come back, uh, pick up on our conversation with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a para group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to The Real Investment Show this morning. Michael Leibowitz joining me. In The Prince's Bride, there's the Sicilian. And he's reminded that the term that he uses consistently may not mean what he thinks it means. And this is, this is what is happening with the markets right now. And Mike and I started to talk about this. We got a little bit sidetracked on, on FTX and crypto. But... The word pivot 
is not necessarily meaning what the market thinks it means. And when you talk about the term pivot, the market is thinking that, oh, when the Fed pivots, that means they're going to be cutting rates and going back to QE. And that's not what a you know, that's not what the Fed is talking about. A, a pivot is not slowing the pace of rate hikes from 75 basis points to 50 basis points to 25. A pivot is not just stopping rate hikes, right? A pivot is that reversal into lowering interest rates and, and doing QE. And, and so there's this disconnect between what you know, the market's rallying on the hope of the pivot, which is this pivot's just a slowing of pace of rate hikes, but a real pivot is not necessarily, and Mike alluded to this earlier, is not necessarily what you think it is, and it's also not really great for equities. And, and particularly when you start thinking about next year, you know, let's assume for a moment that, you know, the labor market remains tight and labor costs stay elevated. And you can kind of, there's an argument to be made for that, right? But if that's the case and inflation is slowing, which Mike and I both expect it will slow next year, but that doesn't mean that inflation is going to go back immediately to the Fed's 2% target. It's going to take time, you know, for that to get there, you know, and, and having this kind of more acute inflation problem next year suggest that the Fed may stop rate hiking rates at some point, but it doesn't mean that they're going to pivot and start lowering rates unless, to Mike's point, and this was this is the key point, if the Fed does reverse and start cutting rates and going back to QE, you know, quickly, that means something is broken in the markets. And that's not good for equity prices because equities will have to be repricing for forward valuations, forward earnings, forward economic data that's getting markedly worse, not better. And so this is the one thing that we need to think about going into next year. And, you know, Mike and I have had this conversation before is that, you know, the first half of the year, you know, that may be the time to own bonds. The second half of the year may be the time to own equities, depending on how this all kinds of plays out. But again, it's going to be how fast we get there. But Mike, you know, I guess this is kind of the interesting point you know, this this whole idea of a Fed pivot is, is you know, they may not be hiking here, but they're likely not going to be cutting either unless there's some type of, of negative shock to markets in the economy. Right, right. So equity investors really don't want to pivot. I, kn I know they think they do, and I know the market rallies when the word pivot is mentioned, mm -hmm. but pivot is not what you want. What we're going to what we're going to get is a stall where the Fed says, okay, we've done enough. We've done enough. Let's see what's going to happen. And that'll play out potentially over a long period of time until they pivot. And again, pivot could be scary at that point. So you know, what gets them to pivot? But to, to, to appreciate what's going on, let's think about the Fed's perspective. And we can debate all day whether their perspective is right or wrong, but it doesn't matter. They're the ones pulling the levers. The Fed thinks or is very concerned. The Fed looks back at the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. and they've studied that a lot to try to understand what they got wrong. And by wrong, I meant that there were three big outbreaks of inflation between the early 70s and the early 80s. And each one was higher than the last one with the last outbreak in the very early 80s with inflation going up to almost 15 percent 
which, you know, that's a decent amount higher than what we're seeing today. So what the Fed realized was in the 70s and 80s, and again, you know, we can debate this all day whether this is happening now or not, there was a price uh, wage spiral. So prices go up, employees ask for more money, companies then raise prices, employees ask for more money, and it's a self-feeding circular dynamic. The Fed is concerned that, that if that behavior starts now, and there certainly are signs that that's going on, that that inflation can sustain itself. Again, doesn't mean it's going to be 15% inflation like the 80s, but the Fed is scared of 5% inflation, 4% inflation, 6% inflation. So what the Fed is really trying to do, and if you read their speeches and listen to what they're saying, they're telling you what they're going to do. They want to knock the legs out of the labor market. They want, they can't say it, but what they, I think what they would love to say is we want a higher unemployment rate. They want to take that pressure out of the labor market so employees can ask for raises so that companies then don't have to compensate compensate their bottom line by raising prices. They want to kill the price wage spiral before it really gets a grip. And that's the lesson from the 70s and 80s. That's Volcker's lesson. And that's what they're doing. And the only way to kill that price wage spiral, in their opinion, is to crush the economy, yeah. not to crush the economy, to have a quote unquote soft landing. But I think we all mm -hmm. know what that means, <laughs> given how tight the labor market still is. Yeah, it means a recession. Well, and then so, two things out of this, you know, really, you go back to Ben Bernanke, right? He was the big historian of the Great Depression, and he was scared of the financial crisis was going to cause another depression. So that's when we started all these QE programs, etc. And, you know, the you know, while his medicine may have been the right remedy at the time, the problem was is they kept applying the medicine to the patient for far too long. Right. Right. And we caused uh, you know, basically an asset bubble and everything. Now it's interesting because we're trying to apply the same lessons that we learned in the 70s to an environment that's totally different than the 70s, right? You know, and this is the big risk that the Fed is overlooking. You know, this isn't the 70s, right? Uh, back in the 70s, household debt to net worth was like 60% and today it's 160%. You know, the, the amount of leverage in the economy is magnitudes larger than it was back in the 60s and 70s. So interest rate hikes have a much more immediate and impactful mark on the on on the economy and on the markets and on consumers than it did back in the 70s and in other words you know consumers were able to withstand higher inflation and higher rates back in the 70s much better than they can they can afford to do it today and we're, and we're seeing that come down the pike now we're already starting to see credit card debt ramping up as consumers are just struggling to make ends meet yes we just saw retail sales come in better than expected but that was because of the inflation in prices, not that consumers were buying a lot more stuff because they're, you know, happy, healthy, you know, homeowners. It's just they're doing everything they can to make ends meet and they're having to take out more debt to do it. So, you know, the, the risk that the Fed runs is, again, the same that Bernanke is doing is, but in reverse this time, is applying medicine that has a far different outcome than what they expect to have happen. Because again, if you even take a look at the wage spike, the this wage spiral that everybody's talking about, it's not occurring in high income wage earners. It's mostly in your leisure, hospitality, your lower end workers that are, you know, and part of this has to do with policy out of Washington, not paying $7.25 an hour for minimum wage. We now have to pay 10, 12, 15. And that's causing 
and that's where we're seeing a lot of this wage price, this wage spiral is occurring in these lower end wage earners. And those get those get those are the first guys to get unemployed and have no wages fairly quickly. Uh, here's here's something really interesting in Washington, D.C. They just passed a, a law that says restaurant workers have to make minimum wage, yep. which I think is 15 an hour. Yep. So they were making three bucks an hour, four bucks an hour, whatever it was, and living off tips. So now now the restaurant has to pay them 15 bucks an hour. The restaurant has to raise their prices to make up for that. Mm -hmm. So now the consumer is going to pay higher prices for food, for restaurants. And then the question is, do they tip? Yep. And if they keep tipping at, you know, 15, 20 percent, whatever it is, there's your wage price, your price wage spiral. Yep. And it, it's happening in other industries in different ways. But the Fed you know, I think clearly knows what it th clearly thinks what it has to do. We're not saying we agree or disagree. It doesn't matter what Lance and I think or that or what anyone thinks for that matter. It's what the Fed thinks and what the Fed wants to do here. Yeah. But but Lance, you're 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 dead on comparing this period to the 70s, 80s or the 30s like Bernanke studied is very foolish. Yes, there are lessons to take away. But this environment is very, very different. And the repercussions from getting policy wrong are very different. My father, my parents bought their first house in 1970, mm -hmm. moved down to Maryland. And, uh, you know, it's like 29,000 for the house. But they paid their first mortgage was something like 15%. Right. If you put mortgage rates at 15% today, <laughs> you can kiss the housing market goodbye. It's finished. Well, but the big difference was is 15. And again, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s, you know, wages, savings rates were 8%, 9%. Economic growth right. was 8, 9%. And yeah, you buy a brand new car off the showroom floor for six grand. You buy a brand new house, three bedroom, one and a half bath, 1,100 square feet, kind of the typical middle class family right. house. It was $25,000, $30,000 on a 30 year mortgage. So yeah, 15% right. payments. It was affordable. And again, you had no debt in the household. Our parents didn't have credit cards. Right. And you're, you're absolutely right. You try to do a 15% mortgage today on a $400,000 starter home. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. Right, right. Well, let I me mean, think about that. Say he was making ten or 15000 a year. He bought a $30,000 house. Yeah. That was two times his income. Now, if you're making 50000 which I think is the median income, good luck buying a $100,000 house. Yeah. Just ain't good luck happen. buying a $300,000 <laughs> house anymore. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. So 
talking about housing prices just for the break with Michael Leibowitz got me to look real quick for some data. And I, this is really interesting because this just goes to show you how screwed up we've, we've messed with the markets in the last 12, 15 years. 1960, median home price uh, was $11,900. Uh, price growth from 1950 was 31.7%. 1970, the median home price was $17,000. Price growth was 42% up from 1960. So this is by decade. So we're just looking at decade over decade. Um, We can look at uh, inflation-adjusted prices as well. Uh, The inflation-adjusted median home price was 104,000. That's today's dollars. Um, Back in 1960, it's 112,000. So the median home price only grew over a decade in inflation by $2,000. So just keep that in mind. 1980, uh, median inflation adjusted home price, 147000 Now, this is that inflation push Mike was just talking about a second ago. Uh, price growth was up 87%. Inflation and real estate tend to, to go together. So not surprising there. 1990, but again, you know, we're only we're $147,000 on an inflation adjusted household. So now we're 1990. Houses go up by another ten thousand, so the median house is one hundred and fifty-seven thousand um, dollars. You know, at that point, and the average interest rate is ten percent. I also, at this point in time, you still have to put twenty percent down on a mortgage. So you have to put twenty percent down. There was no second mortgage and all that nonsense in your median. Uh, and this was my original mortgage rate when I got a mortgage was ten percent. So I remember those days. Uh, in two thousand, now this is where Greenspan comes in and says, "Oh." Everybody should afford a home, and we need to do adjustable rate mortgages. And this is where we introduce the split mortgage, where you get 80% primary mortgage, a 20% secondary mortgage to avoid PMI. This is where we start getting into low down payments. Interest rates are continuing to fall. So in 2000, the average mortgage rate's 8.1%. Split mortgages, home prices go to $179,000, so a fairly significant jump. Home price growth up 120%-ish. 2010, median home price is now 263. So now you're starting to see this escalation in home prices as people are taking out these just-right mortgages. We're getting more people into homes, taking on you know more risk and, and leverages. Now we just remember we've also gone through the dot-com crash here. But home prices are now 263%. The average interest rate on mortgage is now 4.7% in 2010. 2020, the houses, house prices fly. We're now $336,000 for a mortgage with interest rates at 3.1%. So you can see this acceleration in both the prices of homes, sizes of homes also getting bigger, but the amount of debt that's having to come in to the economy for the average homeowner to just, to Mike's point, to buy just a median home, it's $300,000. The average income is about $56,000. The average family in America, that bottom 80%, make less than $100,000 a year. So this, this whole debt problem, this, and, and what I'm bringing this back to is what we talked about earlier, the Fed's here hiking rates. The Fed hiked rates in March of this year a quarter basis point. They then hiked rates by 50 basis points. They then hiked rates four more times by 75 basis points. That gets us through the meeting two weeks ago. They're going to hike rates 50 basis points in December two more times at least 
of 25 basis points in 2022 before they stop. Now, out of all those rate hikes, only one, that original quarter basis point hike, has actually impacted the economy yet. All these other ones are backlogged, and they take about 9 to 12 months to show up in the economy. So these four rate hikes of 75 basis points each, that's three full percentage points, just those alone. That 3% increase in rates is not going to hit this debt-laden market until early and mid-next year. So the risk of an economic downturn or a recession being much worse than people expect. There's a, lot, there's a lot of calls for a recession, but don't worry, it's a mild recession. Just a little trinkle of a recession, that's all. There's a big risk that it may be a lot worse than that. Mike, your thoughts? Well, there's also another thing that we haven't talked about. It's not just you know consumers and the government. There is what's called a wall of corporate debt coming due in 2023, 24. And basically, there's a lot of bond maturities for corporations. There weren't that many in, comparatively in 2022, but in 2023, a lot of debt needs to be rolled over. Yeah, so, it's, uh, just to put a number with it, Mike, it's 1.6 trillion starting in June. Okay, so 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 what's you know, uh, I think a lot of people think okay, a company borrows money for five years and then they they build a factory and then they pay off the debt and it's all gone. It's not the way it works. They roll over debt. They keep that very few companies actually pay down debt to any substantial amount. Most companies roll it over. So they borrow money for three years, three years comes up, they borrow again. So when they do that, they're essentially borrowing long term, but in three year increments in that case. And they are become very dependent on interest rates. And why not? Interest rates have been, you know, extremely low for a long time. They got used to it. Well, now there's a huge wall of debt coming up in like what'd you say june of 2023 yep. in another six seven months that's going to be refinanced at five percent plus versus two percent that's going to hit corporate bottom lines on top of every on top of a weakening economy mm -hmm. and that is why corporations this is this is the lag effect it's we're still six months away from this happening and corporations are going to have to refinance. They're going to refinance at say five or six or seven percent. Their interest expense is going to go up by X. To to account for that, they're going to have to lay off people. They're going to have to not invest in new products. They're going to do something to try to make up for the higher interest expense. And that's that's your lag effect from the corporate balance, just the corporate balance sheet side. There are so many different lag effects that we could talk about, but that's one of them, and that's a big one that. In six months, we're going to hear a lot about. Yeah, and you know we've talked about this before. You know, one of the big risk of all this is in that small cap, that Russell two thousand space. And you know, there's a lot of calls right now that small caps are going to perform great next year. You know, they've they've really been underperforming. They're going to outperform next year because they perform better in a recovering economy. And it's interesting. You have a a, a good tweet from our fin our friends over at Kailash Concepts uh, this morning in our daily commentary talking about you know after. The biggest bubble in history in the financial markets, 40% of the Russell 2500, that kind of small to mid-cap space, doesn't turn a profit. And it's hard to imagine after you know everything that we've been through, all this money coming to the economy, and this is where a big chunk of those companies that you're talking about, what we call zombies, right. they, they're dependent on debt, of issuance of debt to service the debt they already have. And they're dependent on low rates to do that. So there's a big risk that, you know, 
if the Fed goes too far, hikes too much, and breaks something, that we could see a rash of bankruptcies potentially in that small to mid cap space as debt becomes, you know, that refinancing debt becomes, you know, much more difficult. And this ties back to subprime. Subprimes were a small percentage of the mortgages outstanding. These small cap companies are not a huge percentage of the corporate world, but they start defaulting and it weighs on banks, it weighs on investors and pension funds, endowment funds, all the different types of investors, and it can work its way through a system due to the massive amount of leverage that is, to be honest, they, no one knows how much leverage there is. It's not fully cal calculatable. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's very underappreciated. So, you know, what starts off as a little problem in one little niche part of a market can really multiply, right? It doesn't have to be crypto. It can be small cap companies. It can be something else. If we don't appreciate the leverage or the amount of debt outstanding, the amount of risk being taken, then we can't appreciate the potential consequences of much higher rates. And I think, Lance, we keep talking about the lag effect is such a big deal and no one mm -hmm. seems to be talking about it. No one seems to understand that these rate hikes are just beginning to scratch the surface of the damage they're going to be doing. Yeah. And look, maybe we're wrong. Maybe hopefully, there is no lag effect this time. Hopefully we're, we're dead wrong. Yeah, hopefully we're dead wrong. Um, that would be great. And we can just go buy stocks and it'll all be good. Um, yeah, you know, and, and look, Mike, you know, I've had this conversation before, and I think it's very important that, you know, for everybody listening to us right now is that, you know, look, we're just trying to analyze the data for what it is. Is it possible that next year that we could avoid a recession and have this fabled soft landing in the economy and none of this stuff that we're talking about happen and everything is, is peachy keen and the Fed drops rates and the market, the bull market just takes off. And sure, it's possible. There's absolutely a possibility that that could be the case. It's probably a very small possibility, <laughs> but <laughs> it's it's possible, right? I mean, you know, my, you know, I played the lottery. I thought I might win, but I didn't. But there was a possibility I could have. Um, and I think we have to keep that in the back of our mind in terms of, of managing a portfolio. We always have to to at least accept the acknowledgement of a possibility, and provide some room for that in the portfolio allocation. And quite honestly, read, read people that are bullish, read people that don't think this is coming. Try to understand why they think that, mm -hmm. you know, it either helps build conviction in your case, or it helps you understand that there are odds that you're wrong and trying to understand what those odds are, yep. right? We may be sitting on an 18 and the dealer is showing a five in blackjack. That's, that's a great position to be in. But, you know, we've all, you know, not hey, all of us, but we've lost money playing that. <laughs> Five card Charlie's happen all the time. <laughs> so, absolutely. All right, Mike, thanks so much. That wraps up the show for the day. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog post is out uh, discussing exactly a little bit of what we're talking about here, which is why monetary policy, the tightness of it, suggests that we may have some more work to do first in this market before we get to the next bull cycle. But that is uh, on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. While you're there, send your questions, comments, emails. Get our daily commentary. I just mentioned the chart from Kailash Concepts uh, that's in today's daily market commentary. If you want to see it, just simply click on the link right there on the homepage. Make sure you're subscribed. We email that out every morning at 730. Also subscribe to our weekly newsletter right there, right next to it, just to the right. Just click that button and subscribe. We'll take good care of you and make sure you get all the information you need to manage your money better. Realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.